2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Novel Dialogue, a literary podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies. I'm Vade. My co-host is John Plotz. We take turns hosting episodes throughout the season. If you are new to our show, Novel Dialogue brings critics and novelists into lively conversations about how we read, write, publish, and remember novels. And today, we are expanding our usual format to stage a trialogue between the wonderful novelist Cristina Rivera Garza and critics Kate Marshall and Dominique Vargas. Professor Rivera Garza is, of course, much more than a novelist. She is a prolific writer of short stories, poetry, essays and nonfiction. She is also a translator and founder of the first Spanish language doctoral creative writing program in the United States. She has been awarded more prizes than I can count but suffice to say, she is a MacArthur genius and her novels, most recently, the beautifully eerie the Taiga syndrome have been translated into multiple world languages. So thank you so much for making time for us, Professor Rivera Garza. Thank
2: you so much for the invitation. Yes, we're very
0: excited. Professor Kate Marshall joins us from Notre Dame where she is an associate professor of English and the author of a fantastic book on American literature and media studies entitled Corridors. She's currently finishing up a second book about novels by non-human narrators. And our third guest is Dominique Vargas, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Notre Dame and has just defended her dissertation on decolonial consciousness in multi-ethnic women's literature. So congrats, Dominique. Welcome, welcome, Kate. Say hi to everyone. Hello, hi, thank you.
1: It's great to be here, thank you, Arthi.
0: Yes, and without further ado, I'm passing the mic to Dominique to get us started. Hi, thanks. Thank you so much, Professor Vergaza, for taking time to talk to us today. Um, I think we'll start with just sort of a basic question um, and ask you, how did you know you wanted to be a writer? How did you start writing?
2: Well, that's apparently a simple question, right? <laughs> uh, it's always very complicated. And, um, and I tend to have a couple of answers for that. Uh, now that I look back, I think it all started because I I was an avid reader as a as a child, uh, and reading um, you know all kinds of books, not necessarily novels or, or not necessarily literature. I read some chronicles, I read some history of medicine, some uh, accounts by botanists. Uh, so just getting close to the written word allowed me to dream to imagine different worlds. And I believe that's pretty much the seed that uh, started it all. And did you do that from a very young age? Uh, well, I, um, you know, we used to travel a lot too. We used to take a lot of long road trips when I was a child. I'm talking about you no know, being uh, seven, eight, nine, 10, 12, you know, sort of. Uh, pre-teenage, I suppose, um, and in, in addition to, to reading, I think these long road trips um, allowed me to, to just get used to, to imagine uh, alternative worlds, um, alternative um, ways of being in this world. So, I think both, both came more or less at the same time, um, not extremely young, but somehow, getting there to the age, you know to the teenage years when you are questioning everything, uh, interrogating everything around you.
1: Well, thank you um for also giving me some, um... Good motivation to continue my policy of not using iPads on long road trips with yeah. my with my young children, who I've been <laughs> encouraging to um, spend a little bit more time in their heads as we um, as we travel the country. Um, it's you know it's really interesting to hear about your um, about this about this early reading and how you're thinking about um, different ways um, of engaging with. With texts, um, you know, ranging from from stories to botany texts, and we were wondering if we could ask you about um, other ways in which you could describe the key influences on your work.
2: I'm so glad you mentioned the issue of technology. I, I should have mentioned, uh, Kate, that uh, when I'm talking about these road trips, these very long road trips, um, all across northern Mexico. Uh, uh, the car was one of those old uh volkswagen sedan cars you know the bochitos we call them in mexico and of course it didn't have a radio so it was a very basic basic type of car so uh there is so much you can talk in in family in these very long trips so there is nothing else left after a couple of hours but the imagination so engaging with that in a very active and dynamic way transforms uh, what you see through the windows into you know entire movies entire novels uh, very complicated plots and everything so that that was very relevant and and that allows me to talk a bit about those influences i think and the names are the names that you usually uh, uh hear when Latin American literature is mentioned. Juan Rulfo in Mexico, Rosario Castellanos, a wonderful uh, woman writer too. Um, Poets also, López Velarde, Ramón López Velarde from Mexico as well. Uh, Later on, when I was in the university, um, uh, women writers like, of course, Virginia Woolf and uh, Marguerite Dura and, you know, a, a range of, of, um, of both, um, women and men authors, but I have to say, I read a lot of women. That was not something that I chose consciously. It just, uh, seemed, um, they were available and they seemed to be important in the way I was trying to think about my place in the world as well. So listening to you talk about sort of the ability
0: to have time, and I'm wondering, um, if that, uh, branches into your um, work as well do you what's your relationship like with your books once they're done do you go back and revisit them do you take some time apart
2: when I'm doing readings that's when I that's when I read my books back and uh, I can uh, um, I cannot help it. I'm, I'm, I'm worshiping my own work and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this comma shouldn't be there. That word was, was, is not the exact word. I should change that. This paragraph needs a, a better uh, closing sentence. So it's, it's a very dramatic experience. Um, uh, it's never like uh, this is complete and done. So in a way it is, the, the, the exploration is. But the work of writing, that's never ending. And, um, and there is always space for something else, for an alternative view, for a new work, for something that I would do differently now. And given um, the chance, like uh, when, uh, when I'm translating, when I'm, when I'm working with, with translators specifically into English, I, um, I, I take every single opportunity to rewrite my books. So uh, uh, if if I if I could, I I would change some of the titles of my books too. But I've been I've been told that that's not a good idea. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, because of the identity of the book, you know. But also because um, uh, you cannot offer uh, an old book with a new, uh, with a new uh, title to, to readers. It would be like lying to them and that I wouldn't, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't like to do that. But, you know, books change, books evolve. When you were talking about having a relationship
0: with your translators and not letting a book end, um, I'm reminded of, you know, other writers who either auto-translated their work or, you know, Tagore uh, translated Garibari as the home in the world. And in Bengali, that would be inside outside, which has a very different resonance in in his own national tradition versus say, um, an American or global tradition. But uh, also Ame Césaire, who kept coming back to *Kaye* and kept rewriting that poem throughout his career. I was just curious if you, with your translators, Feel like you're revisiting and rewriting a text that could follow you for longer, you know, a text that you maybe is more like your life or that changes with you as your life changes.
2: Yeah, yeah, th- there is definitely that sensation. It's very organic too, and um, um, I have another story for that one as well. Uh, I was working with um, that was Susan Jill Levin and Aviva Kana in the translation of the Tiger Syndrome. And, you know, I wrote that, I, I published that book in Mexico. It was classified as a book of literature, just that. But once it was translated into, I guess, literary fiction, that's how you, you, you would use, that, that would be the label in English. Uh, but once it was translation, translated into, into English, I was very surprised, pleasantly surprised, that the book won the 2018 Shirley Jackson Award which is, you know, a, 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 it was a, it's a very different reading of the book. Uh, one that I loved, of course, uh, one that, I, that taught me to read my book in a, in a different way, to look at scenes and, and, and plot lines and character development in, in such a different way. So I love the power of translation in that sense, that is not only the moving, language you know from one type of uh, registered into a different one uh, you are able to cross uh, genre
1: lines so we were gonna um, make some space for you to give a brief reading and now might be a great time um, to invite you to read from your work
2: so what i'm I think it would be a good moment to read the last section of this book. It's, it's uh, the title in English is "Keep Writing." I'm not going to read every single one; it would be too long. But I'll read um, a couple of the uh, sentences uh, right here. Because we become social in language. My I for you, your you for me, are you all for them. Because writing by nature invites us to consider the possibility that the world can, in fact, be different. Because the secret mechanism of writing is imagination. Because imagination is another word for criticism. And these, the other word for subversion. Because those who write will never adapt. Because memory Because writing teaches us that nothing is natural. Things are closer than they appear. Writing also tells us that. Because it is through that rectangular artifact we call a book that we communicate with our dead and all of the dead are our dead. Because a sentence produces memories that will be inhabited by the names of Marco and Jose Luis Pina Dávila, Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, January 30th, 2010. Because belonging is something I do through you, sentence. Because at the end of each line, there is an abyss worth tumbling into, or launching yourself into, or disappearing into. Because look how the verb the burst, burst out of itself. Because, too, it is what we would write in the case that we were to write. Because a line is an imprecation or a prayer. Because terror stops there where the word terror stops inscribed. Because a paragraph is an extreme sport. Because language is a form of opposition that always takes us elsewhere. Because it is only through writing that the here is founded, because the now. Because while the violence invites and acquires unprecedented forms, Contemporary language has difficulty giving it possible names. Martin and Brian Almanza, Nuevo Laredo, Reynosa, Matamoros, April, 2010. Because in the rectangle of a page, I am nourished and I dream and I plunged and I die because there too, I am reborn. We are reborn. Because yes, is a small and sacred and savage word all at the same time. Because I do not forget, because we will not forget.
1: Thank you. Um, and I really love that section of um, of grieving. The section called "Keep Writing." And one of the one of the lines um, that wasn't part of this reading is one in which you say, "Because this is the most." because this is the most definitive form of the collective. Um, and I wanted to think a little bit about that with you um, and um, ask you to talk a little bit more about this picture that you've been really building with us um, all day about how writing produces collectivities.
2: Yeah. I've been working for quite a while about a concept, uh, disappropriation. appropriation. Uh, um, I published the book, uh, recently translated into English, by the way, by Robin Myers, called uh, The Restless Death, uh, Necro Writing and Disappropriation. And essentially what I, what I did there was uh, um, trying to think, uh, well, trying to, to, to give a sense of, of the kinds of um, thinking processes that I've been going through as I try to explain myself and others uh, how writing comes into being, especially one that is situated in the United States, uh, a writing that I, that I do in Spanish in the United States uh, while I'm working as a professor at, at different universities, right? So um, there, there has been, I'm, I'm very aware of, uh, of um, a very important discussion that, that we've been having as a, as a collective about uh, issues of appropriation issues of uh, who has the right to say what and to write uh, what. And uh, the way in which I've been thinking about is, is precisely through the issue of disappropriation. Essentially, I mean, it's, it's, it's way more complicated than whatever I want to say right now, but it's an invitation to consider that the root of all um, writing processes are, uh, uh, the roots are, are plural, That we are first members of a community and then when that community fails is that we become individuals. Um, That when we uh, pictures, uh, stereotypical pictures of writers that depict them, you know, by themselves in front of of the computer and with a huge bookcase behind them, uh, as though they are Um, troubled souls uh, struggling by themselves against the world that's something um, that I'm essentially questioning all the time Um, because essentially what what, I'm I'm kind of I'm going to repeat a bit what I've said earlier but um, when I'm when I'm using language and that's what I do when I'm exploring and working with language that which is what I do when I write uh, there is a sociality in it. There is no way that I can do that by myself. Uh, that's the reason I've said, uh, there is no solitude in writing. Uh, I might appear to be by myself in front of the computer, but if I'm working with language, I'm working with entire histories. I'm working with my community or, or, or what I consider to be my community, but I'm working with, with a range of communities too. Uh, that that is the to me the the, the great capacity the power of, of writing and responsibility too so um because the language i'm using is not of an, is not of my own making because it brings with them all these embedded histories and stories and because um what i do is part of an ongoing uh, larger dialogue that involves um, many other practitioners uh, that's basically why i'm I'm saying this that appears to be a solitary profession it's not at all ever right and uh and then as a consequence as a result of that i think that writing has this enormous capacity uh, for community making um in terms as i said of the telling of the stories but also in terms of the way in which we interrogate uh language in general in different communities with different uh, cultural mores, with different needs, with different dissensus uh, processes have uh, ways, uh, specific ways to approach language and what language is for. Right? I've said recently on the occasion of the publication of *El Invencible Verano de Liliana*, my most recent book in Spanish, which is an exploration of the of the femicide. Uh, 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 of Liliana Rivera Garza my my youngest sister I've said that it's taken me 30 years uh, this this uh, tragedy occurred on July 16 1990 so 31 years after that um, I was finally able to to write this story and uh I did that. I was able to do it because collectively now we have generated a language that allows me to tell this story without uh, resorting to the usual mores of the passionate, uh, passionate crimes or the usual way of telling this story from the patriarchal point of view, which usually uh, um, um, makes the victim responsible and accelerates accentuate, the, the the perpetrator. So. It is not something that we can decide on our own. Uh, we, we, we work with these materials and, um, and this weight that might appear to be such a long weight 31 years in the, in the specific case of the book that I'm talking about is just something that was personal, my own personal uh, process of uh, grieving process. But it's also social, the way in which the time that has taken us. And specifically to to feminists, to feminist mobilizations throughout the world, to produce a language with which now I can tell this story with dignity, and 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 faithfully too, and critically as well. And another way, obviously, is something that we do at the at the uh, on campuses, on university campuses, right? We teach creative writing. Um, in in my uh, uh, to me it was extremely relevant to to be able to collaborate to contribute to the to the emergence of this PhD in creative writing in Spanish especially because it took place in 2017, a crucial year of recent politics. And it was very important to me that we were doing this as, as Spanish was being deleted from the, the pages of the White House. And to be able to say that in that year, we launched a program that might allow writers who write in Spanish in this country was part of my, um, my, um, my activism my writing activism and and that to me is important we can do way more and, and many other people do wonderful very important uh, uh um they engage with communities in in other ways but this is what what i see as as my own responsibility this is what i can do we are after all uh, about 50 60 million spanish speakers in this country the spanish is hardly A foreign uh, language in the United States. I live in the second largest Spanish-speaking country in the world. Every time that I say this, it's like, hmm, where this woman might be living? It's like the United States. That's such a,
0: I mean, fascinating set of ideas. And you've introduced so many interesting concepts into the conversation. I mean, disappropriation being one of them, but also an aesthetic collectivism as an antidote to aesthetic individualism which is, I think, what often defines experimental writing to a lot of people, right? The sense that you are pursuing difficulty or incomprehensibility in the name of somehow breaking with the community, not conveying a a communal spirit. Um, I was going to go back one step and ask you about that doctoral program, um, creative writing in Spanish, and to think about that in terms of, a topic that has come up several times on our podcast, which is decolonizing the university
2: and how one does it, right? Those are two wonderful, wonderful questions. And I think they go together. Let me just um, very briefly elaborate on the first one. It has to do with issues of experimentation. uh, I've said this also in regards to my most recent book, but I think it applies to earlier works as well. That in order for me to be able to write this book in the way in which it was written, I had to investigate, contest, struggle with um, received narratives, received powerful hegemonic narratives of, of violence against women. And so experimentation is not an option, right? It's not a, a, a decision that, in, that an individual uh, can can uh, take on on his or her own. I think in in my case, what I would like to think is that in order for me to be able to tell this story, as I said earlier, with, with dignity and 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 um, and with political relevance, I had to um, not only Pose the questions, but also to subvert the form. So both things to me are related. Uh, and of course, I'm a writer, and at times I, I indulge myself. I, I I like some of the of the um, exercises that um, the professional readers might enjoy more than, than readers that uh, that are just uh, that are not professors of literature. Let me put it that way, right? Casual readers. Um, yeah, these casual readers and uh, as relevant what they do as what we do, that's, I, didn't, I didn't wanna uh, imply anything else. But uh, as much as I can indulge myself in that exercise, I, when, I'm, when I'm writing, when I'm in, in engaging in, into a, long, uh, a longer project, um, that's my task. So I have to investigate language. I have to do something uh, <clears throat> because without that, there's no aesthetic moment. There is no aesthetic operation to begin with, and therefore the whole the whole um, ethical aspect of it gets gets it's missed too. So uh, that's that's extremely important. So I don't I don't consider that to be a a, a feat of um, you know a deed of uh, extreme individualism. I think it's, it's just a matter of obedience, honoring the materials that I'm working with, rather than than the opposite. You see, and on the other on the other hand, I think there's much to be done about decolonizing both uh, writing and the university. I think uh, m- the PhD that, that I'm working with is housed in the in the Department of Hispanic Studies. Um, uh, I'm I'm betting on the fact. I I truly believe that uh, the future. Let me see. Let me put. Let me put this. Let me find a way to put this. Um, uh, in a better way. Uh, The the PhD program that now we belong to had two tracks, uh, literature and linguistic, which is the usual structure for for many of these departments. Uh, We came to add a third one, creative writing. I do believe that this is the future for the Department of, of Hispanic Studies or the Department of Spanish and Portuguese or departments of Romance Languages. There is, um, there is of course, the pull, the attraction that creative writing um, uh, uh, elicits among students, and, and that's in, in terms of numbers, is incredibly relevant, but also there are pedag- pedagogical tools that we bring into campus and to the discussion of language that are extremely relevant for future professors of Spanish in this country. So there is a horis- the horizontal structure of the workshop, uh, the careful reading and consideration of text, the conversation that is central to, to you know to workshopping in general, uh, and uh, um, the possibility uh, to 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 being vulnerable even in a in a in a university setting in a phd program which usually requires uh, the opposite right we we have to think that we are we know what we are doing and and we have what it takes we have the stamina and, and the determination well yes we all have to do that but at the same time we can be vulnerable and allow uh, um, uh dissent and allow this this critical conversation that to me is is extremely relevant in the pedagogy of creative writing programs. So uh, there are um, many, many limitations that comes with the university setting and I'm very aware of that. Uh, But there are issues specifically about public universities that are very dear to me. And uh, uh, I am uh, the 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 product of a public university. Without a, without the UNAM and later the University of Houston, I wouldn't be the the professor and writer that I am now. Uh, and and I'm saying that in terms of in structural terms, you know, in terms of finances and the economy, but also in terms of the friendships and in terms of the conversation, right? And uh, and I would like to think that. Um, creative writing programs that are uh, placing community and community-making processes and practices at the center of their own exploration uh, will teach us something about decolonizing the university.
1: So I have the final question, which is a tradition of this podcast. So Novel Dialogues always asks, what is your favorite treat? While you're in the throes of writing, so what do you do or play or eat when the going gets really tough?
2: Oh my gosh. Let's see. Uh, I, I usually write in the mornings. Uh, that's my best time. That's my best energy, especially after, you know, right after waking up. And I'm not so sure if I'm still dreaming. I'm still, or I'm already thinking that kind of threshold is important to me. But obviously, I have to do something to just start um, typing, and and that would have to be green tea.
0: I love so, that.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's, and then I continue with that. It's much better than coffee. I had to quit coffee, but for you know health reasons. But I would say that that's uh, it's simple. It's uh, powerful and it, it helps me i have to say that's my favorite answer because i drink about six
0: cups of green tea a day yeah. <laughs> yeah. i start my green i had
1: to, i switched to it from coffee recently too it's good
2: is that right yeah, yeah. it's much better right it's, it's less uh, i don't know i i get less jittery it's, yeah it's a nice slow burn
0: throughout the whole day
2: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I agree so it's been a it's been a good good uh change in my in my life yeah writing life
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to thank you all for letting me make it a quadrologue every now and then, but I thought this was a really wonderful, um, trialogue and I will just send us out. Um, John and I are grateful to the Society of Novel Studies for its sponsorship and acknowledged support from Duke University and Brandeis. Nai Kim is our production designer Claire Ogden is our audio engineer. Hannah Jorgensen is our transcript editor and James Draney is our blog editor. Past and upcoming episodes include Mark Walliger talking to Tom Parada, Corinna Stan with Carol Phillips, and Colleen Lai in conversation with Viet Tan Nguyen. From all of us here at Novel Dialogue, thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.